Hello, and welcome to the Baseload Podcast, where you'll hear common sense and unfiltered commentary on the Australian energy sector. My name is Ben Beatty. I'm an engineer, and I'm sceptical of everything. Tenured public servants who do the job properly are not being asked, and our body politic do not know how to ask the questions anymore because they have so hollowed it out, and they are now at the sway of lobbying groups in Canberra the renewables industry are one of the biggest lobby groups we've got in Canberra and they're continued knocking on the doors and continuing to push their agenda on politicians who frankly are naive. And our current energy minister really has no technical or educational qualifications to be fulfilling the role. Former president of the Australian Nuclear Association, Robert Parker, on the Decouple podcast recently, expressing his thoughts on the capabilities of our political class. This is similar to the opinion recently expressed by the outgoing CEO of Snowy Hydro, Paul Broad. That theme of political incompetence in the energy sector is a, is a theme through today's episode. We're going to go through our broken electricity market, some of what is happening and why it's so bad. Central planning, what we're in for, according to our illustrious energy leaders. And nuclear power. A new report by the U.S. Department of Energy, which is talking about repurposing uh, coal-fired power station sites into nuclear. Let's get into it. Australia's East Coast national electricity market is lurching towards total breakdown. In fact, it's hitting bottom right now. We can't really see it that clearly for what it is because we're in the middle of it. We are too close. Let's look at where we are in 2022. What's been going on? Historical price spikes, market suspension... Liddell Power Station, partway through its staged closure. Massive spending planned on the high-voltage transmission grid. Frequent market rule adjustments. An increasingly two-sided market, those that are subsidised and those that are not. An increasing frequency and duration of negative wholesale pricing. And the change of government, with its frankly ludicrous and dangerous renewable energy and emissions targets. I describe the electricity system as more than critical. But I'm not sure there are uh, adjectives that adequately encompass how important reliable, low-cost electricity is to our lives. Stephen Wilson on the Power Hungry podcast. So what, what's the role? The question is, you know, what's the role of the government? What's the role of the private sector um, in, in, this, uh, in this industry? Right. And, and how, do we, how do we ensure that we get um, the security of supply that, that we need? Uh, and that we're getting the service. I love the way you use the word service. We're getting the service that's needed at a price that's competitive for businesses and affordable for households. Right. And then, and then also that the environmental footprint or impact of all that is socially acceptable. Right. And that, and that shooting, obviously that's going to include the CO2 discussion, but it should not be limited to CO2. It should include all the other things as well, including land footprints and visual footprints and all the rest right right it all it all has to be considered holistically and and i think um i think it's going to be very difficult to escape the fact that there's a role for planning and collective decision making involving government in all of that that you can't just leave that whole thing to the market i think that's just delusionary so Stephen, there's talking about the philosophical uh, purpose of the market and the role of governments in supplying electricity and he's describing it as a service not a commodity regardless of the philosophical questions physically and economically i think we'll see uh, this period 
as the end of the beginning of the failure of the national electricity market, as it was initially designed. Uh, and there's several reasons for this. One, the utter cowardice and or ignorance of most politicians involved with energy policy. Two, the total incompetence of the mainstream media. Three, the corresponding near-complete success of the renewable-slash-climate lobby. And four, the fact that too many Australians with their middle-class welfare have been lulled into a stupor so warm and comfortable they don't want to acknowledge how bad things can get. I'd urge people to take a look at Germany right now, or the UK, or Spain, or California. Alternatively, there are far too many people who struggle to understand the consequences of bad decisions in our critical energy systems. Just this week, I presented some data to some colleagues showing them the utter insignificance of Australia's emissions targets when compared against the natural variations in the carbon cycle. One said, thanks for the information, but it was important for Australia to lead by example. And yes, he drives a Land Cruiser, a three and a half ton V8 turbo diesel four-wheel drive. What can I say to that? When I say middle-class welfare in the context of our energy systems, this means rooftop solar. According to the Australian Energy Regulator's June 2021 State of the Energy Market Report, there is a combined 11,000 megawatts of solar PV panels installed on rooftops across eastern Australia. I challenge folks to locate a grid-connected rooftop solar system that is not subsidised by his non-solar neighbour. 11,000 megawatts is a lot of market capacity removed from the big generators through the day that must be brought back on at night, or when it's cloudy. That's a lot of generation not controlled by the market operator at all. That's a lot of generation paid exorbitant feed-in tariffs regardless of whether the market needs the generation or not. And it's the biggest reason the electricity market is showing negative prices in the last few years. According to the Australian Energy Market Operator's June 2022 Quarterly Energy Dynamics Report, South Australia had 10% of its wholesale price dispatch intervals in negative prices. While that's an improvement on the previous quarter's 15%, 20% and 25% respectively, does anybody believe that these trends are the result of a well-functioning market? The purpose of negative prices is to indicate oversupply. It's supposed to be a rare occurrence and, a well, and in a well-managed and well-functioning market it would be. We are not in a well-managed and well-functioning market, not by a long shot. The aforementioned politicians, bureaucrats, media and renewables lobby would have us believe this is an opportunity, an anticipated outcome that can incentivize storage, but only their preferred expensive, inefficient and resource-intensive storage, batteries. The theory is that batteries will make squillions of dollars by charging at negative prices, being paid to soak up excess renewable generation, while reducing peak demand by discharging during the most expensive periods, all while saving consumers lots of money. Yes, folks, by making existing long-lived assets unprofitable, that's the coal-fired power stations, and building way too much short-lived wind and solar, it's the lowest cost generation after all, and building lots and lots of short-lived batteries, adding complexity to the grid, will have the least cost electricity system. And that's some um, impressive logic on display there. What is actually happening is that wind and solar get subsidised with the cost socialised across all consumers and businesses, while consumers become more reliant on gas and hydropower, which are traditionally the highest cost generation in the country. The quarterly energy dynamics report shows that peaking generation, i.e. gas and hydro, is setting prices more frequently. This is because of the increasing variability in the electricity supply from all the wind and the solar generating, not generating, generating again. You get the picture. Of course, pumped hydro must draw down on the energy grid to charge its reservoir for later use. And when the average price is high because of external influences restricting other forms of energy, 
think weather reducing wind and solar output, flooded coal mines, constraining fuel supplies for coal-fired power stations, gas pipelines at capacity, uh, transmission lines out of service for repairs, uh, even aging power stations down for maintenance. You know, partly because the owners can't afford the necessary maintenance or can't afford the downtime. Either way, all these things add up to make sure that the minimum price periods increase. This then forces the pumped hydro plants to charge a lot more during peak periods to recover their pumping costs. Now consider when the network is full of lithium-ion batteries, with many more charge-discharge cycles due to their limitations of low capacity, short duration, uh, and these technologies will be exposed to the same arbitrage risks as the pumped hydro. So if the charging price is high, the discharge price must be higher. It has to be that way to make, otherwise they can't afford it. They can't earn any income. So the batteries also must discharge during the highest demand periods, when the prices are highest. You can quickly see this so-called low-cost system spiralling rapidly out of control. Stephen Wilson again on the Power Hungry podcast. The subsidisation of wind and solar has destroyed the 1990s pure market theory, right? It, it, it hasn't completely destroyed it yet, but it's, it's well on the way and it will completely destroy it. At the very most, we, Australia, since the Kyoto days, should have committed to no more than maintaining our emissions at the current levels. By not increasing emissions, in relative terms, our emissions percentage would have reduced proportionally because the rest of the world would continue increasing emissions, just like they are now. If we had maintained our low-cost, high-security, synchronous electricity grid, we'd have a serious advantage over other countries, we would have a far lower cost of living, and the chance to attract power-intensive industries to our shores. But because of the reasons outlined earlier, by the end of this decade our cost of living will be enormous and our energy security will be in the toilet right when we need it to be strong. And that won't be the end of it. By the time enough of the public recognises this fact, that the country's economy is on its knees, We'll have the public will to engage in taxpayer-funded spending on huge infrastructure projects, like big nuclear power stations, but we'll be so far in debt that that amount of public spending will be impossible. Impossible, but necessary. And where does that leave us? This is all brought about by policy, physically manifesting as energy scarcity. Now, I don't think we'll hit widespread blackouts because of an energy shortage anytime soon, but we've already flirted with regional energy shortages. For example, the rolling blackouts across Melbourne on Australia Day in 2019. Sure, there were some baseload stations at reduced output for various reasons, but the margins were so tight that according to the then CEO of the Australian energy market operator, Audrey Zeebelman, the wind dropped more than they predicted. And to prevent cascading outages across the state, they were forced to drop load in key areas. The result? Homes and businesses throughout Melbourne were unexpectedly cut off in the middle of the afternoon. The key here is understanding what the bureaucrats aren't telling us, that the margins between having enough electricity and not enough are growing thinner every day. How can the CEO of the electricity market operator of the 13th largest economy in the world use the weather as an excuse to explain forced blackouts? That's the dog ate my homework excuse. It's unacceptable. This is testimony to the margins getting thinner and the stupidity of these policies. Another example was South Australia on the 8th of February 2017. As told by Matthew Warren of the Australian Energy Council at the time, in the morning, wind generation reached around 1,000 megawatts but fell away rapidly after midday and was below 100 megawatts by 6pm when peak demand occurred. At 4pm, wind generation was around 300 megawatts and forecast to fall to 200 megawatts by around 6pm. Wind speeds fell more rapidly than anticipated and wind was generating only 96 megawatts at 6pm. Realising this shortfall, 
AMO asked Engie to bring its second unit at Pelican Point online to fill the shortfall. Engie advised it would take four hours to fire up the unit. At 6.03pm, AMO directed South Australia Power Networks to shed 100 megawatts of load and gave clearance to restore that load 27 minutes later. A systems fault resulted in South Australia Power Networks shedding around 300 megawatts, blacking out around 90,000 households. Hmm. Rest assured, the renewables lobby would have reported that as a fossil fuel failure. Okay, who out there listening to me describe the worsening state of our electricity system thinks that our politicians have the skills or the experience or even the will to get us out of this mess? Here's our energy minister, Chris Bowen, talking about wrecking what's left. In my view, the transformation, and I think it's more than a transition, the transformation to a, to a renewable economy has been two things in Australia, too slow and too disorderly. Now, a capacity mechanism, in my view, properly designed, you know, properly designed, encouraging storage, encouraging renewables, as well as ensuring an orderly transition and an orderly removal of uh, old technologies, a properly designed capacity mechanism is that safety net to make the transition or the transformation go faster, not slower. Uh, and that's, that's how we'll design it. Well, here's a question for you, Mr Bowen. Why do we even need a federal energy minister? What's the point of you? You're not accountable to any voters for your policies. This position just creates an energy dictator with central planning powers while the state ministers who are actually responsible to their voters hide behind the collective combined front of bureaucracies. But there's no need for it. The states are linked by capacity limited interconnectors. Sure, that link provides some more load at times so the state's generators can export power. But that link also imports price volatility, network instability, renewable intermittency. The net effect of interconnection is rapidly changing for the worse. And why do we need so much more transmission? To get more intermittent and variable generators connected. It makes perfect sense. I mean, how could it possibly be questioned? Uh, The Australian Energy Market Operators Integrated System Plan is a cost-benefit analysis, giving us the cheapest option to connect massive amounts of wind and solar. And therein lies the problem the preconceived end state where the system is preordained by bureaucrats instead of evolving gradually according to need and technology. Anna Collier, Chair of the Australian Energy Market Commission. We are going through an unprecedented uh, time of change in the sector. It's affecting every point in the supply chain. Uh, In fact, recently I heard this described as not just a once in a generation change, but a once in human history change in that we're trying to stop using a fuel source, that's the first time we will have ever done that, and replace it entirely with some other way of supporting our lifestyle. So as a result, our energy system is becoming increasingly complex, and what we're seeing, of course, is it's becoming increasingly distributed. One of our chief energy bureaucrats there describing this as a a once-in-human-history change. Uh, What else did she say? Stop using a fuel source and replace it entirely with some other way of supporting our lifestyle. Okay, so this is central planning on a grand scale. Chris Bowen describes his plans as the ISP on steroids, the integrated system plan on steroids. The, The plan's justification is underpinned, well, weighted in their terms, by canvassing the opinions of transmission companies and bureaucrats. Most cost-benefit analyses require a a do-nothing scenario. The counterfactual is a baseline against which to compare the costs and benefits of the scenarios being considered. But this isn't necessary for energy wizards who have perfect foresight over what is needed and what isn't. 
Surprise, surprise, the cost-benefit results always come down in favour of more spending, regardless of how improbable they appear. Speaking of improbable, a recent report, yet another one, I admit there, there's plenty of reports being released all the time, uh, released by a group going by the, the moniker Net Zero Plan Australia, actually states that they present their results without considering plausibility. Imagine that. This is the report responsible for the uh, Tasmania-sized solar farms you might have heard about recently in the news. Chris Bowen's plans include spending $20 billion of public money to accelerate the build of uneconomic new transmission. Well, to be honest, transmission can never be uneconomic because it is guaranteed profits in proportion to the size of the asset. More kilometres means more profit. Bowen says this public money will attract $76 billion in spending from state governments and the private sector. So according to Bowen, the transmission network needs almost $100 billion of investment right now to meet 2030 targets. This is before development approvals, the granting of easements for rights of ways to build overhead transmission lines through, you know, people's farms and backyards, community engagement. One wonders how the bureaucracies assigned to review these massive investments through the ponderous regulatory investment test process are supposed to keep up. The last transmission project to be approved, Energy Connect, an 800 megawatt link between Wagga in New South Wales and Robertstown in South Australia, that took several years before it eventually got approval, which it only received with the help of taxpayer funding in the form of a $300 million grant from the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, the government's green bank, thanks Julia, after the project costs, the costs blew out from $1.5 billion to nearly $2.5 billion. The original justification for this transmission line was to replace expensive South Australian gas generation with a much cheaper New South Wales coal-fired power. What has never been explained is that since the project's approval, the South Australian gas generation has been progressively reduced, with reliance on synchronous condensers and diesel gas turbines, while at the same time, New South Wales is going to lose Liddell Power Station and maybe Araring. Losing Liddell and Araring is going to lose New South Wales around about 3,000 megawatts of baseload power, and this new connection will add about 800 megawatts of peak demand to the grid. So that would be increased demand at the same time as reduced supply. That spells higher cost to me. That's not even including the cost of transmission landing mostly on New South Wales electricity consumers through their bills. I do sound harsh on the bureaucrats, but I don't mean to blame anybody except the leadership. For everybody else, it must be a bit like being on the bridge of the Death Star, because I'm sure speaking out about this, uh, these scenarios would almost certainly be a career-limiting move. Each announcement of new wind and solar farms seems to be accompanied by the announcement of a new market for grid stability services. Grid stability used to be guaranteed by the inherent characteristics of synchronous generators. With the grid's synchronous generation decreasing by the day, the physics of the grid are under assault, and the bureaucracies have no choice but to create new ways to pay for the services required to keep the grid stable. Two decades of subsidies have created this mess, and according to our illustrious leaders, it's still not enough, and our efforts, read spending, need to be massively increased. Chris Bowen on the Renew Economy podcast. I certainly agree we haven't done enough as a country, and I certainly agree that, you know, we are now starting late. Um, and that's just my point. You know, it's 2022, and we're talking about a 2030 target. And David, that's 90 months, you know, so that is not long um, for this massive transformation. And we've seen what happens when the transformation is mismanaged. Now, we've known 43%, as you know, we've discussed this before in this podcast, is the modelled impact of our policies. It's not a number that we just sort of picked out. 
we decided what policies we could implement, rewiring the nation, we'll probably talk about that. Um, safeguards mechanism, we may or may not talk about that. Yeah, but all the big policies, EV policies, et cetera, and it comes out at 43%. Now, as we notified the UN, not many people, I mentioned this at the press club last week, not many people sort of have spoken about this. As we notified the UN, our NDC says 43% is our target. We hope a country can do better than that. You know, we, we, we want to unleash private sector investment. We want to get the policy framework right. Um, so 43% is not a ceiling. Um, it is the modelled impact of our policies and we'll be working to do better. Yes, but if you consider CO2 to be an externality of electricity generation, nuclear wins. If you consider the environmental impact of mining, refining and land use for wind, solar and batteries an externality, nuclear wins. But the Australian Renewable Energy Lobby is desperate to ensure we have no other options. Here's our Energy Minister, Chris Bowen, explaining why. Nuclear is the most expensive form of energy. We have a cost of living crisis, energy prices going through the roof, and what's their big bright idea? They say, let's, let's have the most expensive form of energy we can possibly think of. Let's come up with the most expensive form of energy and let's put that in the system because that's going to make power prices cheaper. They want that debate? They really want to argue that? Bring it on. It's, a, it's a, just a complete joke. We might have to replay that for Chris Bowen in a couple of years. Even the elites are starting to get it. Oliver Stone, in September, at the Venice Film Festival, released a new documentary supporting nuclear power and debunking myths about it. Well, hopefully without adding to the climate alarmism propaganda that's already out there. So how do we change the conversation for the better across all the commentators and bloggers and podcasters and the media, bureaucrats and politicians? How do we identify better public policies? It's certainly not possible to get better outcomes for consumers while relying on the central planning by a few self-interested bureaucrats and politicians. If they had an interest in improving things, we'd have seen some results by now. We'd certainly have seen some pushback on the subsidies and targets rolled out to the renewables companies. If there was an interest in the best outcomes, we'd have seen much more discussion about a level playing field for all electricity market participants, allowing the best technology to win in a competitive environment. That's what a market is supposed to be, after all. Sure, we could have seen tightening pollution regulations, ratcheting down emissions thresholds for actual pollutants, and I'm talking particulates and nitrous, nitrous oxides and the like, not the colourless, odourless, tasteless carbon dioxide that's supposed to be eliminating the polar bears. The polar bears are doing just fine, by the way. Numerous studies have shown that that catastrophizing to be false, among many others. And we'd have definitely seen some of the discussion steered towards nuclear. How about awarding a consolation prize to the Japanese or the French to build a couple of nuclear power stations in return for dudding them on the nuclear submarines? Or what if we'd spent the last 20 years spending on nuclear what has been spent on wind and solar, and that's just the taxpayer money? Nuclear is obviously the best solution to powering an energy-dependent society. Long life, high output, synchronous, no pollution at all, long refueling intervals making it almost immune to sudden fuel price shocks, High-skilled jobs, secure jobs, long-term jobs, intergenerational jobs, even union jobs. And not just the power plant, but the entire supply chain. Fuel creation from the mining and processing to the depleted fuel handling and storage, and all the associated logistics that goes with it. As our civilization advances, we are supposed to use our resources more efficiently, get more from them. Every coal-fired power station has an adjacent mine, if, if they're lucky. Every gas plant has a pipeline plus the numerous gas wells and infrastructure scattered across the natural landscape. 
Whether that's conventional oil and gas with rigs installed in shallow oceans or unconventional coal seam gas with their numerous small wells dotted across the bush and agricultural land. But those inconveniences pale into insignificance beside the blight of 100 metre tall wind turbines built in our high ridges where the slow to reproduce apex predator birds fly and nest or thousands of hectares of land smothered in tens of millions of solar panels that could otherwise be used to grow food or protein. All of this, of course, requiring massive high-voltage transmission lines traversing the plains, hills and forests that are necessary to connect those widely spread, small output, low-capacity, semi-scheduled, you know, they call them power stations, that we know in advance will not contribute anything significant to peak demand. To meet even the average electricity supply, not the peak, these resource-intensive but low return in terms of energy contribution, towers and panels and batteries and electric cars, they, they require huge quantities of raw materials mined all over the world, followed up by transport, refining, manufacturing and transporting again before they even get installed. Make no mistake, the so-called transition to renewables means not just a couple more sites for wind and solar. The targets dreamt up by Bowen and his crew call for thousands more sites. And this means lots of big holes in the ground all over the planet just to provide the raw materials. The International Energy Agency estimates that raw material production demand must double globally by 2040 to meet policy targets set today. Escalation could easily see demand quadruple. In other words, Western countries need to pay for all this extra environment-destroying stuff to save the environment. Until you start focusing on what needs to be done, rather than what is politically possible, there is no hope. We cannot solve a crisis without treating it as a crisis. We need to keep the fossil fuels in the ground and we need to focus on equity. And if solutions within this system are so impossible to find, then maybe we should change the system itself. We have not come here to beg world leaders to care. You have ignored us in the past and you will ignore us again. We have run out of excuses and we are running out of time. We have come here to let you know that change is coming, whether you like it or not. The real power belongs to the people. Thank you. Uh, the world's favourite pouty teenager there, uh, getting applause. Okay, Duma. There's a well-connected nuclear community out there, linked across the globe by social media and a common interest in seeing nuclear power flourish and prosper. It seems obvious to many here in Australia that our long overdue nuclear age is upon us. We have some coal-fired power stations supposed to be closing in the next decade. These all have access to transmission, rail, water supplies, heavy haulage roads that are important to get big equipment like steam turbines and generators and transformers into the site. While clearing large areas of land for industrial use is becoming increasingly difficult, unless you're a wind and solar developer of course, then these sites are perfect for repurposing. Each site will have huge rehabilitation costs looming. Why don't the state governments do a deal with the site owners, the first being AGL's Liddell in New South Wales, to forgive the rehabilitation costs in exchange for just clearing the site of the power station itself? Leave the transmission rail and roads, and hand the cleared site back to the government. The government then, as an incentive, offers the site for free to a nuclear power station developer. Uh, after the first obvious candidate, Liddell in New South Wales and Gladstone in Queensland, Yalorn in Victoria, Port Augusta in South Australia, 
Vales Point in New South Wales. These are all perfect sites to build nuclear power stations to take advantage of the existing power systems, infrastructure and the existing industrial site. The US government's Department of Energy just released a report discussing how to repurpose old coal power station sites into new nuclear power station sites. This is an absolute no-brainer and will no doubt be vigorously opposed by the renewables lobby. The report states that 80% of either retired or existing coal-fired power station sites could be easily repurposed to nuclear. Which makes you realise that Greta, well, whoever writes her lines for her, is less interested in reducing emissions than imposing their grand plan on the world. Well, no thanks. I don't have the CEOs of Rio Tinto, BHP Whitehaven or the other resource giants to ask, but if I could get them all one by one in a Maxwell Smart cone of silence and ask them if nuclear or renewables was better for their bottom line, I bet we could all guess the answer. Twiggy Forest says publicly there should be no more fossil fuels developed. Forest, of course, has a green hydrogen company with 1,500 employees and no product to sell. Even if he did make some, he has no way to move it, no way to store it, and no market to sell it in. He's either very smart or getting very desperate. Nuclear power, of course, does away with all this nonsense. Instead of a mine beside every coal-fired power station in every country, you only have single mines in two or three countries. Australia, with the largest proven reserves of uranium, has as much as the next three largest combined, including Kazakhstan, Canada and Russia. Nearly eight times as much as China and more than ten times Ukraine or the US. Nuclear power output has plateaued globally since the early 2000s, at just over ten times Australia's total demand, but is set to increase dramatically. The world is on the verge of a nuclear power resurgence and Australia risks being left behind because of this moronic demonisation of the world's cleanest energy source. China, Japan, Korea, India, UK, Netherlands, France have all announced nuclear programs. Even Gavin Newsom, <laughs> California's uber-woke governor, publicly anti-nuclear, is delaying planned early shutdowns of nuclear plants. Michael Schellenberger on the Power Hungry podcast discussing Diablo Canyon nuclear power station and the plight of California's electricity system in general. The overriding factor was we're on the cusp of blackouts again, third year in a row, Robert. I mean, this is a very serious situation. To get a sense of it, August 24th, the state announced that it was going to ban all internal combustion vehicles in 2035. Uh, six days later, the state warned people not to charge their electric vehicles because there wasn't enough electricity. Yeah, This is in the fifth largest economy of the world, a, an economy that has been a leader on renewables, that considers itself a model for the rest of the United States, indeed is the model for the Democrats for how to do energy policy around the rest of the United States. We're having to, you know, um, we're struggling to keep the lights on. We have to beg people to stop using electricity. So clearly, that was a huge part of it. I mean, Gavin himself said when he announced that he was looking at this earlier this year, he said that the 2020 blackouts were a key moment. I mm. was the only journalist, and there were others on the conference call, to actually quote the head of the grid. I wrote a Forbes column on it saying that it was fundamentally about lack of supply, duh, and and B, that it was because they had shut down, they had lost San Onofre nuclear right. plant in 2013. Right. Um, nobody else reported it. The state is full of fake journalists, I have to say. It's pathetic, who do not properly report on this issue. Some similarities there between California and Australia. On the fuel side of the nuclear equation, 
Uranium production globally measured 54 kilotons in 2021. Uh, Australia's contribution was just 6 kilotons, just above Canada, but miles behind Kazakhstan's 25 kilotons. Those numbers are not very big compared to global uh, supply chains and mining in general. So a mid-sized oil tanker weighs just about 100 kilotons. Therefore, for just a few hundred tons per year, Australia could be largely nuclear powered with just one mine, no more wind turbines and solar panels, and less stuff. Think about that. To wrap it up this week, I have a couple of clips here. One's from Tanya Plibersek, asked an interesting question by a journalist, I mean, I mean activist, at the National Press Club when she was talking about her State of the Environment report. And the other one is uh, a recent interview on the Renewal Economy podcast where they're talking about the absolute control of government in determining what runs and what doesn't. Have a listen. Nick Stewart from the Canberra Times. Thanks, Minister. We now know things are much worse than we thought they were going to be. Isn't the fastest way to cut down on carbon emissions just simply to say, right, no more coal mines? Um, <laughs> um, it's all different. You know, there is a reason. There's, there's a reason that absolves you from all previous um, uh, qualifications that you've, you've given. It's something new. Uh, no, we're not going to start breaking promises. Change ISP scenario, I think we need, you know, four to five gigawatts of, um, of renewables, you know, every year for the next, you know, next 10, 10 20 years. Yeah, it's, um, quite, it's quite clear that's not going to happen without government incentives, isn't it? I mean, you, you, I mean, it's just too hard to rely on a coal plant closing down at some unknown and uncertain date. Um, you, you, you have to have some guarantee that your revenue is going to be there. And, and we need some policy to manage the coal out of the system, don't you think? A, a quite, Absolutely. You know, the, the certainty that that would be provided, that is a government role, really, isn't it? Don't you think? Yep. I mean, Absolutely. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a week. In the meantime, if you like the podcast, hit the like button, subscribe, tell your friends. <laughs>